This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 217, brought to you in association with Smart and TheEnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Ricardo Yosua, founder and CEO at Pismo.io, a Brazilian fintech who provide core banking technology and who raised an impressive $108 million B round last year. It seems only yesterday to me that $10 million was an impressive B round. How things change. Anyway, we will hear more about Pismo later in the show. But to keep this intro short and sweet, we are here to discuss fintech in Central and South America. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Ricardo. Thank you for joining me on the show today. It's a pleasure, Mike. Happy to be here. So I think I may have given the game away as to where you are, and that I've mentioned Brazil once or twice, so you're a bit sort of down left from me. But uh, in terms of geography and that, and, and, and Brazilians, my most memorable recent encounter with, with Brazilians was when we had uh, one of these rare things called a holiday over the summer Wow! in Santorini for a couple of weeks. And we're sitting on this beautiful restaurant overlooking the caldera. Santorini is the one that's blown up, so there's this big crater. Pretty expensive restaurant. And, and in the corner was this, what I assumed was kind of Italian lady. And the chap with her was proposing to her. So, of course, Bridget being a girl and all the sort of local girls were sort of, oh, wow, oh, gosh, how oh, nice. I'm thinking, yeah, right. And anyway, she's sort of blurting out tears. So Bridget, after a while, said, oh, she's crying for quite a lot. I said, yeah, these Italians, you know, they're like that. And it was about <laughs> 10 minutes later, and she was still crying. So that's a bit strange, even by Italian standards. And um, anyway, long story short, so that was just a bit of a mystery. But then we, we got up to go, and we got uh, chatting to them, and Bridget taking some photos, and they were exchanging the photos and, and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, it turns out that they were um, actually both Brazilian, with quite a nice <laughs> backstory. They were both firefighters, actually. And she had learnt from the other chap, had been her instructor on how to fight a fire and all that kind of stuff. Oh, in about seven years before. And they'd known each other for quite a long time and they got together. And then, long story short, they got engaged in Santorini at literally the adjacent table to us. So from that, I can derive that they have to be careful not to sort of say anything too romantic, because otherwise you might burst into tears for a while. Although actually, to be fair, he didn't. She did. Well, or, or sound Italian uh, by the looks of it. <laughs> so I'll be yeah. careful with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Any sort of swarthy types who looks like Mediterranean or Mediterranean <laughs> spin-offs like we have down in, uh, down in South America. But zooming in on Brazil, at the opposite end from romantic moments, I don't know if it's a romantic moment or not, but you had an election just recently, which was, uh, which was pretty close, very near 50-50. And... Um, ever since the fortification of the uh, election in, in the part that's sort of a, a, above Central America yeah. most recently. I'm always a little bit, as many people are, a little bit suspicious when these things come out at 50.1 and 49.9% or, or whatever the overall um, number was. And, and in fact, talking about the collapsing world that is the UK, I do remember <laughs> the, the woman who was a former mistress of Johnson's or something, a former, about five prime ministers ago now, <laughs> Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> he was having an affair with him, I think, about the time of the Brexit stuff. And it was pretty much suppressed, but she would go around telling people afterwards that, uh, oh, it was a way bigger difference, but they just fixed the numbers to look a bit more respectable. So 
I have no idea. Anyway, of course, Brazil, being a completely uncorruptible country, uh, 50.1 and 49.9 are very similar. But in Europe, we've noticed, the more observant have noticed, that Ukraine is a couple of countries. There's the West Ukraine and there's sort of the eastern side of Ukraine, the different lots of uh, people. But from what little I saw about the Brazilian elections, it was pretty geographically separated and that the northeast yeah. voted for one gentleman and the, the sort of the rest voted for the rest so do you want to give us a sort of an idiot's guide to sort of brazil geography or politics or elections sure uh, you know a primer uh, do we have uh, three and a half hours uh, all right. yeah sure yeah yeah it'd be more interesting than all this sort of uh... all right so let's well in 1500 it's an appropriate start for one on on south america because Politics in South America do vary uh, more than yeah, they well, yeah, do in Europe. Exactly. I think, you know, one of the things that gets uh, Brazilians uh, <laughs> a little angry or frustrated often is that, you know, even the lumping of countries in South America as the, you know, or even, you know, below the U.S. as Latin American or South American, as if it were, you know, something that had unity in itself is, is, is sort of frustrating. Because, of course, uh, for those who don't remember their school days, the obvious uh, proximities that we were colonized by Portuguese and Spanish, largely, with few exceptions in the Guianas. And of course, uh, most countries speak Spanish because of that. They pretty much got their independence around the same time, early 1800s. Brazil was in 22. But Brazil is still, you know, the only country that speaks Portuguese. Uh, so we don't speak the language of the other Latin American countries. And after the independence, uh, you know, some of the countries in, in Spanish America sort of broken down into smaller countries, had, you know, went through civil wars and uh, a bunch of other messy affairs. And now we ended up with a very diverse, not only uh, in terms of population and, and sort of distribution from where uh, the uh, migration came from, uh, the proportion of Native Americans within local populations, uh, geography, you know, changes uh, you know, vastly from, you know, from uh, the Ushuaia, you know, in Chile to uh, Venezuela, you know, you can find, you know, countries that are nothing uh, like each other. And of course, in terms of politics, although there have been general themes, uh, you know, uh, towards the left uh, after the Second World War, and then, uh, you know, moving to the right on, on the later part of this, the, the 20th century, and then sort of a resurgence of the left in the uh, early aughts and, and, and 2010, and then now a resurgence of the populist uh, uh, right-wing voters. And that in Brazil, we had, as you said, an election between Jair Bolsonaro, who, who was dubbed by the economist uh, the Trump of the tropics. So this sort of uh, far-right guy, you know, pro-establishment, although he was a, a, a congressman for, I don't know, for most of his life. And on the other side, uh, Lula, which is the leftist party, most important figure in Brazil. He was in prison on corruption charges a while ago. He was released because the judge that led his conviction was found partial. So, you know, it's a messy uh, situation. And of course, as many other countries worldwide, uh, and it's no different in South America now, polarization has reached uh, the paroxysm, right? We, we, we got to a point where, you know, families were not talking to each other and, you know, a lot of division in the streets. We had sort of people, you know, brandishing, you know, firearms. Just the day before the election, one of the senators of Brazil, you know, got sort of hassled by a guy from the other party in a sort of in a, in a restaurant in the street and she, you know, came running after him, you know, sort of brandishing a gun and, and shooting to, you know, in the air. So that that's the kind of the 
the, the general feel of the election here. And then, of course, it was by a close margin. Uh, although it's like 2 million votes, it's still, you know, a, a percentage point in a country of 215 million. But yeah, it, it's, it's interesting times. I think uh, the only good thing is that, at least for the case of Brazil, in most cases uh, in, in South America now, the uh, institutions are largely sort of uh, taking the brunt of the dissent and sort of surviving it to a large extent, with few exceptions and notable exceptions. Excellent. And yes, as you say, we could spend a considerable time zooming into uh, Brazilian politics and we probably most of us learn a hell of a lot. And just from the external perspective, the major global dynamic in 2022 is the apparent dissolution of the globalist American empire, the so-called gay, and the emergence of a multipolar world with, well, Russia, China and India certainly count themselves as civilization states and the BRICS as a whole. Is there an enormous difference in policy between the, the two presidential candidates there as to whether, should we say, one leans towards uh, America or the other one leads towards the multipolar world and the BRICS saying, look, do you know what? We're going to do things our own way. Thank you very much. You know, enjoy your decline over there. I think, you know, in Brazil and many countries, I think, you know, the, the right wing candidates have largely espouse the uh, deglobalization of, of the world in one way or another. So uh, Jair Bolsonaro here in Brazil was much farther from uh, international politics than, than his predecessor. So Lula yes, yesterday gave uh, his first speech and mentioned you know, that we Brazilians want to be protagonists in the world stage and had, uh, and I think this is also interesting to note, one of the first calls that he got yesterday were uh, from Biden and Sarkozy, and then followed by that, Xi Jinping also sent, you know, oh, we're very happy, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be great, because we have now Democrat in the U.S., and uh, Jair Bolsonaro didn't even recognize Biden at first, uh, because he thought the election was rigged because of Trump. So we have this interesting uh, situation where uh, the leftist government in Brazil has a more uh, globalist approach, which is, I guess... Interesting and, 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 and in a certain way novel, uh, at least for me, you know, we, we've seen more protectionist left governments as the norm and uh, we're seeing now uh, a more globalist left party uh, taking power. So it will be interesting to see in the next years. Yes, long-term listeners to the podcast will know that one of my pet, pet hates is that the words left and right is meaning absolutely anything in politics. Yeah. When I was a lad, left meant concern for the working class, yeah. anti-Americanism, anti-war, yeah. anti-militarism. Uh, a bunch of stuff I would entirely agreed with. Now I'm a little bit older, I'm quite a grown-up lad by now. Left stands for neoliberalism, corporatism, America, and spending lots of money on wars. Anyway, let's put that to one side. So, okay, so that's a bit of a, an introduction to where you're coming from. Now, just very, very briefly, your career journey. In terms of being Brazilian, I assume that was actually one of the easier things for you to achieve, which is that uh, you came out of the womb and you were sort of uh, Brazilian. Well, that bit was sort of fairly... Uh, uh, straightforward <laughs> and maybe we sort of zoom past the sort of the early years and, and get back to a sort of the professional career maybe sort of I don't know 20s onwards or something how come you're here today or there today sure uh, so I, I started my career as an investment banker so yeah well I'm sorry if you're losing listeners from now on but I recanted and I uh, later left investment banking I was working for and, and, and you know looking lo and behold you know this was CS first Boston so well I guess uh, I guess they Took a while to miss me, but uh, now my you know my absence there is being made uh, felt. So yeah, I started there. Actually, I started in a bank in Brazil called Garantia, that was the the partnership emulating Goldman Sachs 
created by Jorge Paulo Lema, who is now one of the owners of uh, AB InBev, the brewery and beverage company. Probably the, the richest guy in, in, in Brazil, maybe uh, in Latin America. So, the, you know, this, this guy had this bank, was acquired by Chris Suisse. Uh, and uh, in 1999, I left to co-found, you know, my first company. Um, it was a card processing company in Brazil. Uh, back in the day, no venture capital, no cute jargon calling this tech fin or fintech or anything like that. You know, everything pretty much bootstrapped. But it was, you know, great experience. Um, I worked there for 13 years, almost 14. Um, then left to do other stuff, uh, including ad tech and you know, some business in finance to cover for the ad tech part. And, uh, the, and that eventually in, in, in 2015, my previous uh, CTO at my first company left and uh, sort of called me and said, listen, we were comparing ourselves to some of the older companies in the US. In our case there, it was like, you know, Pfizer, Fresh Data, TCs. And those companies seemed like, you know, the, the, the paramount of, of, of evolution, but they were still using mainframes. Uh, and, you know, I just visited you know, some companies in California and they have bean bags everywhere. And, and, you know, they all drink margaritas during uh, the uh, workout. So, you know, we, we need to understand how they're doing this. Seems very exciting. Yeah. And, and we started Pismo. So, you know, we started the company in, in, in late 15, sort of a month friends. And then we got to sit around in late 16 to actually start the company. We left our previous uh, ventures and, 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 and started doing that. So it's been six years now. Oh, Excellent. Well, we'll come on to Pismo a bit more in the dessert course of the show. But the essence I take away is that you've got a, a Paco FS background and then you've been a serial entrepreneur for quite some time. Now, as you say, Brazil is perhaps anomalously Portuguese in Latin America, largely to do with the, the Treaty of Tortilla, that the, whichever pope it was signed, which sort of says, anyway, there's this line in the sand and everything east of there is Portuguese, yeah. being the west side of Brazil. Uh, and everything west of there is, is Spanish. And actually, well, I did spend some time researching this because for some reason I got it mentioned in the book or something. But there appear to be two hypotheses about how the Portuguese discovered Brazil. One of which is they kind of decided to discover it and went over there. And the other which is they were just going down Africa and got a bit blown off course. And I did spend some time looking into this. And I never actually really managed just my own satisfaction to, to work out why in terms of the documentation of the evidence at the time. I mean... To be honest, if you're trying to go down West Africa, which the Portuguese were quite good at back in the day, and they're certainly one of the, the first to do that kind of thing, 15th century or whenever it was, it's quite a bit, bit of a way to be blown off course to end up in Brazil, isn't it, really? So, but do you happen to know why you speak Portuguese now, for example? Was it an accident or was it intentionally centuries back ago? Uh, well, you know, I guess it's, it's make-believe. I think, you know, the, the, the uh, African uh, journey went awry, uh, I think, is still the canonical version, uh, as far as I know. And I have heard about this, you know, how, how come, you know, this, uh, the most experienced navigators in the world, you know, would, would make such an agency. But I, remember, they were trying to get through the other side, so they didn't have to go through uh, the Cape, Cape of Good Hope in the south of Africa. So they, they wanted to get... Uh, ways to get to the either to India or Africa, you know, from from the other side of, of the earth, and they already had the notion that you could navigate from the other side. So, could could have been that, uh, but uh, then again, you know, uh, I guess we'll never know. I claim to be one of the the people who who had the one of the last meetings with a, a Portuguese colonial central banker back in the day. I had a meeting with the central the governor of the central bank of Macau. Um, which was really interesting. Yeah. And he looked archetypally Portuguese. He had the little sort of, you know, 15th century oh, yeah. beard and, and the works, actually. Really cool, actually. Far more mellow than the uh, central banker in Hong Kong. 
Right. But anyway, so, so the, let, let's put the history to one side. People know a little bit about that. Just in terms of strict definitions, I kind of confused Scandinavia and the Nordics until I was told off that obviously fin Finland isn't Scandinavia and obviously it's the Nordic. Oh, right, OK. So I hesitate to suggest where the, the line would be drawn on that sort of thin bit that suddenly goes fat and Central America turns into um, South America. But to what extent is there such a thing uh, in reality as Central America and South America? And, and where's the dividing line? Was it just literally a geographical term? I mean, do you, in your own mind, do you actually, do you actually, as a as a Brazilian, think about oh, us South Americans and you know the Central no, Americans? No, there's no such identity. Everything below America is a bit more sane and a bit more insane in different ways. That's a bit more insane, of course, but oh, in in some sense insane as well. But you know, so uh, uh, yeah, no, I think there's no clear, at least uh, in my uh, perception, there's no clear. Distinction from being South American versus Latin American. You know, I, I don't feel, especially because in the in the northern part of of South America, there are some odd sort of peaks there, and when you get to the islands, and so of course maybe there are Caribbean islands and and, and those nations that are sort of set apart from more uh, ways of you know governing and the same kind of you know situations we have in terms of independence. Those would probably be construed as a separate uh, unit. More so than, I guess, uh, Central American countries versus uh, South American countries. But again, I don't see this in this course. Usually, what I do see is that neighboring countries within South America tend to have, you know, varying degrees of uh, migration, but to some extent, especially in Spanish-speaking uh, South America. So, just to give you a concrete uh, anecdote, and of course, by no means statistical information, but. We have clients in, for example, Chile, where you find that, you know, several of the uh, uh, executives and, and people working with us there are from either Argentina or Paraguay or Uruguay, but largely Argentina, Chile and Uruguay. So that, that you see a lot. So in this sort of more southern section of South America, there's a lot of migration, you know, sort of internal migration. So between Uruguay, Chile, Peru, uh, I'm sorry, Chile and, and, and Argentina, uh, you see more. And of course, uh, on the northern parts uh, as well. And there's, of course, Bolivians in Brazil. But again, the, the language barrier in Brazil makes us sort of a more uh, separate. So I think the only relevant separation here is maybe Caribbean and, of course, Brazil from the rest. Uh, Brazil, you know, because of language mostly, uh, is a very separate entity. And because of the makeup of the population as well, uh, we, uh, I think Portuguese in Brazil were especially uh, nasty and, and were able to uh, decimate uh, most of the native Indian population in, in Brazil. So uh, we have less of that than some other countries in, in other parts of the continent. Yes, and Thomas Sowell is always um, banging on about the fact that America didn't import, quotes that many slaves, himself being a descendant of slaves, of course. Uh, so I don't think it's been inappropriate. And actually, the hell of a lot went down south, uh, far more to Brazil centuries ago. And I've probably missed something here, actually, which it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> it may surprise you to hear. And so um, a bit like Scandinavia and the Nordics, oh, it's obviously different. I go, oh, right, OK. So does Latin America then mean everything below kind of you know, the bottom of... Yeah, below, the I think Mexico down uh, would, would constitute Latin America. I think the Caribbean islands are uh, uh, sort of part of, of Central America in, in a sense. But I guess based on their... Um, your nation uh, statuses and, and how they uh, evolved in terms of independence, later independences, or relationship with different countries other than Spain and, and, and Portugal, they are sort of a, a unit apart. Geographically, they would be part of Latin America, but I think culturally, uh, they, they are a different uh, breed of, of countries than the rest of uh, Latin America. I think that that's the only distinction. And again, within Latin America, there's a clear uh, difference between Brazil and the rest because of the language barrier and because we are Portuguese versus Spanish uh, 
Yes, yeah, so it's, all, it's, all, it's all very confusing to a bear of little brain who didn't really like geography at school anyway. I mean, I get confused, frankly, by the American uh, phrase. It's one of their major blocks of uh, Hispanics. And I always wonder oh, yeah. who Hispanics are. If you're Portuguese today, is that a Hispanic or does it, does it mean Latin American or, you know, and, and, and Portuguese and Spanish? I mean, I, it's utterly confusing. Yet it's this major block of this whites and then there's blacks and there's Hispanics. And I don't exactly. know what to call the rest. And then there's suddenly yeah, not a polite yeah. word, I'd have thought. And it's confusing for us because when I go to the U.S., am I Latino? I don't speak Spanish, uh, for one, but my descendants largely uh, European. Uh, so uh, I don't know. Uh, so in, in theory, in theory, I'm a minority in the U.S., so I can get quotas there, I guess. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I'm I'm a minority in London these days, but that's a different story entirely. Um, anyway, so let's get on to the fintechy stuff. And I don't know how many countries there are, even excluding the Caribbean in what I used to think of as Central and Southern America, but I shall call Latin America for the rest of the podcast. But in terms of the major players where you thought you might give us a little bit of a feel and a tour d'horizon of really what's sort of hot in those areas before diving into things from a bit more sort of secretarily or, or, or background. You'd mentioned that sort of the ones that the listeners uh, really ought to know a little bit about are uh, Mexico, Brazil, Chile and Argentina. So yeah. maybe you'd like to go through in turn and give us a little bit of a feel for them. Yeah, uh, so, you know, there, there are 33 countries in Latin. Of course, I, I don't know enough to go over each of them uh, in turn. I can share some of my experiences with some of these countries uh, that, you know, uh, that I have uh, relationships with and that I know more about. And of course, if you take Mexico and Brazil alone, you get a large range of the population. So Latin American population is about 600 uh, and something, 640 million, 650 million, uh, some, something along those lines. Brazil is 215. And uh, Mexico, I think it's another 140, 30. Uh, so, you know, if you take Mexico and Brazil out, you already have sort of more than half of the continent already. And in terms of economic value creation, it's, it's, it's not that different uh, as well. So, uh, and in terms just of, say, uh, venture-backed investments, just to give you a sense. The last I saw, and this is a 2020 uh, data, so it might be a little outdated, but uh, Brazil had like 60% uh, roughly of total investments in, in fintech in, in, in the continent. So, you know, although there are, you know, 30 plus countries uh, and, and, you know, a, a huge swath of population distribution within the continent, you know, many countries are just too small to receive a lot of attention from international investors. Uh, so have 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 developed a, a smaller uh, uh, fintech uh, environment. In the case of uh, Brazil, I think you know it's been largely. I'll start with Brazil because it's the easiest one for me. Uh, then I'll go over to the others. Brazil has had a very very forward-thinking central bank. So uh, starting in mid aughts, uh, so 2007, 2008, after the, the, the financial crisis in the U.S., they started you know enacting a number of regulations allowing new players to enter the market. And then again, doubling down in 2013, they sort of broken some of the duopolies that were very common in this region. Uh, even today in Argentina, for example, there are you know a couple of uh, issuers and processors for cards. There are limits for the number of players who can be certified. In Mexico, everyone has to be certified under a specific tier uh, registration with the central bank. And Brazil has been sort of one of the most lax regulation structures uh, in order to uh, incentivize the growth of financial uh, services through fintechs and new players. So in Brazil, uh, a vast amount of underbanked population, and, and by the way, now just so your listeners know, these estimates will vary, but roughly 55% uh, of the population in Latin America is either underbanked or, or unbanked, you know, have no, has no bank accounts at all. Just on that point, because we had uh, 
a fintech from Nigeria on the show a couple of months ago, which uh, equally is um, uh, Africa's largest country by quite a long way. And they have, I think, off the top of my head, a much higher percentage of so-called unbanked or non-banked. But uh, one of the issues we got into there, which was this whole sort of banked business is a very sort of first worldy thing. And actually, the real problem is there is not that they lack bank accounts, it's the problem they lack money in the first place. They're just very poor, that the income distribution in Africa is very different from, let's say, Europe, or even in America. So I would assume that given the mixed sort of backgrounds of the various populations and the uneven development, that one of the phenomena there isn't that you've just got a bunch of ex first Bostoners who, for some reason, have lost their bank account, but you've got people who actually don't really have any money anyway. So the fact that unbanked is a, a little bit by the by. It's an interesting uh, argument. I think that, I, I, again, I, I don't want to talk about uh, the African continent because uh, I don't have enough information, but I can tell about Latin America. Of course, uh, there's huge inequality here in most countries. Although I think you know the vast majority of uh, countries now have some sort of income distribution program. Uh, again, I can talk you know in more detail about this in Brazil. Brazil has... And again, I, I know this in, in, in well, in pounds now it's it's not even that much more. <laughs> but uh, we we have stipends for uh, low income families that will guarantee them an income of six hundred Brazilian reais, which is about one hundred and twenty dollars. And it sounds like very little, but you know this already puts them above the lowest poverty line, uh, which is very little money, but it's you know uh, about four dollars a day, and that is enough uh, to have. But you know the interesting thing is that during the pandemic, just to give you a sense. We had an increase in circulation of cash because people would get the benefits from the government and they would sort of withdraw the whole amount and use it in, in actual cash. So even though we were not, we were we had you know major lockdowns uh, across the country during the pandemic where you know digital banking had everything to grow. We had an increase in the volume of cash being circulated in the economy, which is counteressential. Yes, so there's an unbanked issue, but uh, but also there's a, a poverty issue, and and those percentages are, as you might imagine, radically different from, uh, let's just say, West Africa. Where off the top of my head, in Nigeria, for Piggyvest, their addressable marketplace and their minimum investment was a dollar on the app, uh, was about five percent of the country. So there, the the income distribution um, drops off. However, you've got hundreds of million people, fifty uh, percent of whom are banked. Put it in that context, in terms of looking at the fintech marketplace, just from the perspective of fintech as a business, and uh, uh, not sort of sociology degrees or, or geography degrees. So there's a very large market there in Brazil, and I assume in in, in many of the other countries as well for 21st century tech products in FS. 100%. And, and uh, again, we have data for that. So uh, New Bank, which is sort of the most well-known uh, fintech, certainly in Latin America, uh, one of the largest in the world today. You know, just, just to give you a sense of comparison, they have 65 million regular clients. 80, 80% of those uh, use this as a primary bank. And most of those didn't have a bank account before setting up this account with uh, New Bank. And New Bank is now operating out of Brazil, Colombia, uh, and in Mexico, and, and increasing, you know, expanding to other countries. But they are servicing, again, these clients with ha- which have savings and we process a part of their uh, savings accounts. Uh, and some savings accounts will sort of accrue interest on them on a two-pound balance or a three-pound balance, you know, a daily interest accrual on that. So there's no lower limit. And, you know, these guys were, uh, they had to pay for uh, their accounts or pay for additional services and bank transfers. And now they have those options. So these players have become 
extremely important for uh, the extension of services and, and the digitalization of, of, uh, of their services, uh, both in terms of security and access to, to, to financial products. Remember that the world now is, 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 is you know, suffering from inflation, but for Brazilians, this is sort of just another Wednesday, right? We've been dealing with uh, different you know, varying levels of inflation for a very long time. Our target inflation was 4.5% a year. Uh, now, of course, it's even better than some developed countries, but it's still, you know, 8%, 6% a year, depending on, on how you calculate it. And, you know, having savings uh, that can uh, bear interest, even on your 5 or 10 pounds, uh, will make a difference by the end of the month. So, yeah, I'm mostly a cynical person myself, but I think this has made a huge difference. And it was largely because the central bank allowed unlicensed structures to uh, provide those services uh, without the same uh, cost structures and rails that were set up for larger financial institutions. Yes, that's a dynamic we see around the world, which is that um, the state in its, all its infinite metastasizing guises has this thing called a financial regulator, and the financial regulator says, we're here to protect people, and they balloon their costs, and uh, they, they set up barriers to entry, and all that, you know, with, with the best will in the world. And, uh, no. You know, it ends up being counterproductive. Okay, so look, let's just rattle through these four then. Sure. I think, you know, in, in Argentina is living through a very complicated situation now. We are uh, now working with a company with the Neo Bank there. Very hard uh, situation. It's called Brew Bank. And I think this is an up and coming uh, solution that is, uh, you know, facing uh, very strong headwinds, but, you know, making uh, very important uh, advances in, in, in the market. In Chile, uh, we are working with a digital wallet and we see that digital wallets uh, like uh you know, the ones we saw growing very much in China and then in some countries in Southeast Asia are also being replicated there. So there's a, a company called uh, FPay uh, from a retail that has now millions of clients that use this as a QR code enabled digital wallet to make payments. And I think this is an interesting advance for a country where, again, uh, there's a lot of uh, cash payments uh, still being made. Uh, so digital wallets are uh, a thing in some of the countries. Uh, it hasn't taken off uh, uh, in every single country in the world. Uh, but in some regions, it has become very important in smaller countries uh, as well. In Mexico, I think it's the uh, uh, you know it's, it's the second most important market in Latin America, and I think we have their uh, regulatory uh, structure for uh, creating a, a structure of cooperating within new rails and new regulations, right? So we have fintechs like uh, Kavak, uh, an older company, right, and used to invade SoFa with Bitcoin. And you have even Nubank, which is a Brazilian company that has uh, operations now in, in Mexico. So it's, it's, a, it's a thriving uh, environment, a challenging one, but a very thriving one. And now with uh, supporting uh, regulatory pressure to, to, uh, to operate in. Excellent. Well, moving on from the sort of horizontal looking at the countries to the more sort of vertical factors, We've mentioned one or two already, obviously the sort of historical differences, the ethnic income distribution differences. You've touched on the differential regulatory stances and, and how that's impacted the growth or otherwise in the various countries. What other sort of factors from a horizontal perspective do you think that would help the the listener understand the sort of topology of, of fintech. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, that China, 
obviously after its Maoist revolution, basically had no banks and being communist. So they leapt right forwards to go to yeah. fintech because there was no consumer lending. As we know in Africa, M-Pesa came out of um, pretty much thin air because nobody trusted the banks because they were all corrupt and in, in the hands of the government, um, et cetera, et cetera. So we've got geography, history, the economic distribution, a regulatory perspective. Presumably also the corruption will vary from country to country and the sort of the several dozen that comprise the whole of Latin America. What do you think the major factors have been cutting through all countries that sort of mean that this country will lean more or, or less towards fintech? Maybe before I answer that, uh, just, just a quick, you know, fintech is a very broad term, of course, you know, and, and I'm sure your listeners know. Uh, so I think in, in, in Latin America, there are two uh, sort of, um, I would separate this in two uh, different sort of buckets here, right? Uh, one is payments and rail, so, you know, connections. So people have deposit accounts and can transfer money from those accounts either to A2A or direct payments or cards or whatever other instrument sort of have access to modern technology. They can buy online and they can uh, use uh, money without depending on, on, on cash, on, on uh, fiscal cash. And the second one is, uh, you know, much more complicated, which is, uh, you know, lending uh, structures, uh, uh, you know, in various uh, formats. We have, you know, companies like Creditus who is extending uh, secured loans, which were uh, very uh, hard to find and come by in, in many of the countries. So, you know, I think there are very different problems and they have very different solutions for those. As you said, you know, there are some verticals that will cut through uh, both of this. And I think the first and foremost is regulation. You know, having a forward-leaning uh, central bank and regulatory body will make a huge difference. And again, uh, you mentioned the Brazilian central bank. And uh, I can say that even given all the sort of corruption scandals and, and, and problems that uh, Latin American countries face uh, regularly, central banks have been uh, lauded uh, for their uh, initiatives and in, in most of this. So they have actually built stuff that works and that uh, increased access. And the data is very, very promising. So I think they have done, uh, you know, a very good work, especially the ones that have managed to keep independent from government. So regulation is the first one. The second one is, you know, how stable those economies will be. Because, you know, for the second part of the uh, component that was mentioned there, so payments is easier, but, you know, in lending and even savings, a volatile economy will hurt uh, smaller companies much faster. Uh, so uh, the more stable an economy is, the easier it is, it is to be. I think corruption is not playing a major role now. These companies are largely venture-backed or, you know, sort of starting from uh, scratch. So they don't carry all the legacy structures and corruption still lingers more on the public sector or on state-owned companies. So I think, you know, that, that, that doesn't seem to be a problem that I see uh, uh, in most countries. So I think, you know, if we have minimum stability, even now with uh, the changing market uh, trends, I think these companies will survive and strive. So I think those two teams are the most important for me. Excellent. So in terms of the expansion issue before, as we've discussed with various countries in various parts of the world, actually, if you're a tiny little country of next to no population, you have to expand because there isn't much of a market. If you're a vast country, be it, I don't know, China or, or America, say, there's no great rush to expand whatsoever. If you're somewhere in the middle, which is tend to be the sort of Scandinavia, your local population is enough to make money and get going and try things and work out what works. And then, then you expand. And I assume that, of course, it's going to be very differential depending on the country. I mean, Brazil is so big that even if you sort of 50% the population are banked, well, that's still way more than the, the UK already. So presumably, if you're a successful Brazilian fintech, unless you're going for a fairly small niche, you don't have a great pressure to expand. And I assume that if you're in a Spanish-speaking country, you just go to the next-door Spanish-speaking country because it sort of must be relatively like, by and large, as a, as a generalisation. So which of Latin American fintechs do you think are going global and have made their mark outside Latin America? 
Not that many. I think the only one that comes to mind is New Bank. Of course, there's Mercado Libre, which is a huge company at this point that has uh, uh, sort of spent through uh, the whole of the, the, the subcontinent. I think there's very, very few examples of companies that have uh, thrived outside of, of Latin. I think I, sh I should mention here that my company is uh, one of those exceptions. We are uh, now doing. I was business. about to say, what, what about this company I've heard of called Pismo? They're supposed to be quite exactly. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we are we are working with uh, core replacement solutions. So you know we're. we're taking companies on a process that is generational. So, you know, the, the, the services that we provide are extremely sticky and extremely hard to move, especially for incoming players. So I think, you know, if it were just for, you know, fintechs and new players, we could really, uh, you know, stay here and focus on Britain, Brazil alone even. But since part of our business comes from incumbents and this conversations take a very long time, you know, the decision process can take a year and then the process for migrating now, we're just migrating a very large bank uh, in, in, in Europe and US and the project itself is, is multi-year uh, just to deploy. So, you know, we are in the process of doing this uh, secular trend of replacing mainframes with cloud solutions. And if we're not there now, uh, we'll lose largely uh, uh, due to time. So um, that, that was the reason we rushed to get other markets uh, while we're still growing in, in Latin America. And by the way, just uh, one point to what you said, I think you know, some listeners might find interesting. I've been telling people uh, something that was extremely interesting for me, that it took us much, much, much less time to deploy our services in, in India than in Argentina. You know, by almost an order of magnitude. So, you know, being geographically close or you know having a similar language does not account for that much. Uh, you know, the, the the nature and the maturity of the rails, uh, the players, and the ecosystem that is available for connections makes a huge, huge difference. And we see that elsewhere. I even connecting to the to the UK, faster payments or the SEPA. There are you know a thousand of opportunities of you know using existing components and building you know alongside those. And for countries that are not as mature, you have to build everything from scratch, and it takes much longer. And again, and you end up with a country with sort of a smaller population and smaller uh, you know consumer base. So excellent. Well, it sounds like it's time to turn on to Pismo because not only have you been kind enough as a CEO and co-founder to tell the listeners all about Latin America and therefore ought to tell the listeners about your products and services in case anyone needs them, but you are, as you say, one of the, the few um, globally expanding uh, Latin American uh, fintechs, so um, that sets precedent as well. But before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there, particularly listeners in Central and Southern Latin America, Caribbean, <laughs> whichever one is which, I'm glad there isn't a short test afterwards, and my brand partners for the podcast, Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. Okay, so maybe we should go back to basics with Pismo. I just sort of said you do core banking technology, which will get some sort of members of the audience sexually aroused and might send the rest of them <laughs> to sleep. But maybe uh, more specifically, you can let the listeners know what your products and services are, which countries you're active in, and which listeners should be checking you out before moving on to tell us a little bit about how you could be even bigger and better in a year's time if you only had more X, Y, or Z. Sure. Uh, well, for, first of all, thank you very much for the uh, opportunity to talk to you, Mike. It was, uh, it was a great pleasure. So yeah, we are a, a platform, and again, I don't want to make your uh, listeners snooze through this, but we are a platform for uh, 
newer technologies providing services for banks and fintechs uh, when they're building their financial services product. So it could be a core banking replacement, it could be a new uh, new bank like N26 that uses our services, or it can be a large incumbent bank. We are now providing services in Europe. Uh, we have offices uh, in, in London and Bristol. We have offices in, in Austin in the US. We have offices in Singapore and India, uh, of course, and, and Brazil. So, you know, we are very excited to share some of the stories uh, and successes we have with some of our clients. If uh, people are interested, they can visit our site at Pismo.io or reach out to us uh, directly. Uh, you know, we love uh, having these conversations, even if you're not, as you said, sexually aroused with the idea. Uh, I can tell you something. Core banking is not a very sexy theme or payments or card issuing. I can tell you that we are the most uh, sexy thing in that space. So, you know, the, the, there's that, right? That's the silver lining. So, uh, yeah, it, it's been a pleasure. And I really hope that, you know, people who are looking for uh, new solutions or to modernize their current solutions, uh, you know, reach out to us and we can help uh, modernize your bank or financial institution. And just to wrap up, you say that you've got offices around the world, so you're increasingly uh, a global fintech that's uh, started in, in, in Brazil and definitely not sort of a national or regional one. But in terms of being even bigger and better tomorrow, when your C round is, a, is a presumably a billion dollars, given that uh, your, your B round was 100 million, what do you need more of in a year's time to be even bigger and better than you are today? I mean, apart from the obvious, uh, or more clients is always nice. Yeah, I think, you know, we, what we're doing now is uh, we are increasing our uh, pace of adoption. We are uh, creating a sales machine that we didn't have. So uh, we were a product first uh, company, so we, we built a product and now clients are increasingly using it. We are now used uh, several billion times a tape. We, you know, uh, move around uh, for our clients on behalf of our clients about 150 billion dollars every year. So, you know, it's and it's growing, uh, you know, two digits uh, every quarter. So. It's an exciting time, uh, and I think now capital would go into increasing our footprint in these markets where we're now growing. We're very excited about Southeast Asia and, and India. We are very excited about Europe, uh, and increasingly excited about the US. Uh, we'll be announcing new stuff very, very soon. Excellent. Well, that's been a very kind overview. The time has flown by, and as always, it's very interesting in the early 20th century to look at this interface between the, the localism and the globalism, certainly from an economic perspective, I don't mean at a geopolitical perspective, and see how companies are crossing that bridge. So I congratulate you and all your Pismo folk on their great success in the past, and I wish you and them even more success in the future. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you, thank you and thank you for all the listeners who spent this time with us. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit Watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance. We could walk in the mountains before dawn. Watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride. Come away from the city
Watch the firelight dance with me. Watch the firelight. 